Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Alrighty, welcome to episode 12 of Crash Course Catholicism. Okay, so... As I was preparing this episode, I realized that we're almost a quarter of the way through the whole catechism. (laughs) How crazy is that? So if you remember, the catechism has four parts, right? The first part is on the creed, and we're almost at the end of the creed. So by the end of this episode, we will have covered, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried, descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From thence, he will come to judge the living and the dead. So that's what we will have covered in 12 episodes. That's awesome. I'm really excited about that. So after this episode, there will only be four more on the creed, one on the Holy Spirit, two on the Catholic Church, and then one on life everlasting, which means that by the end of the year we will have covered the whole creed and thus a quarter of the whole catechism. So that's super exciting. Now, on a related note, I also wanted to say thank you to the people who have been listening to and sharing this podcast. This podcast has traveled a lot further and has reached more people than I expected it to, which in one sense is kind of daunting, but in another sense is also totally fantastic, right? Because it means that there are people like you all over the world who want to know more about the Catholic faith. And that's so exciting, right? So if you have been enjoying these episodes and you feel like they're helping you, please do share the podcast with your friends, right? With someone that you think might benefit. Or if you're like me and like the majority of your friends are atheists who would probably terminate the friendship if you were like, would you like to listen to a podcast about Catholicism? (laughs) Okay, that's what would probably happen with most of my friends. If you're like that, that's fine. You can still share this podcast by subscribing to it if you haven't already or by rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts. Okay. With all of that said, let's get into it. So in this episode, we're going to talk about Jesus' ascension into heaven and his second coming at the end of time, right? So it's kind of a biggie. (laughs) So in the last episode, we talked about Christ's resurrection from the dead. And then in this episode, we'll talk about what happened after the resurrection and then what's going to happen between the resurrection and the end of time when Christ returns. So In the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, we read that Jesus stayed on earth for 40 days after his resurrection, and then he ascended into heaven. So the actual words are, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, the first question that kind of came to my mind as I was thinking about this was, Why did Jesus only stay on earth for 40 days and then leave his apostles behind and ascend into heaven? Like, you know, his apostles were completely traumatized by the crucifixion. And Jesus has a glorified immortal body, so he could have hung around as long as he wanted. In fact, why couldn't he have just hung around permanently yeah, until the end of time? Because he technically could have done that. Okay, well, the reason that he didn't do that is because this earth is not his final destination. And importantly, it's not ours either. So Peter Kreeft talks about this in his compendium of the catechism. He says, the incarnation was like a hunting expedition in which he captured a trophy and brought it home. The trophy was humanity. 
So he talks about how through the ascension, humanity and divinity are united for the first time and forever in heaven. And that's like an incredible idea if we think about it, right? Jesus is the first human being ever to enter heaven. And once he's there, he can bring the rest of us along with him. It's like when you see a class of preschoolers walking along the street and they're all like in a line holding hands and then their teacher is at the front. That's like Jesus up the front leading the way into heaven. He really means it when he says he's gone to prepare a place for us. So there's this amazing talk by Fulton Sheen on the Ascension. Um, It's available on YouTube, so I'll link it in the show notes. But he makes the point that Jesus could quite easily have just discarded his humanity after the crucifixion, technically speaking. I mean, you know, it's kind of done its job, right? So he could have just cast it aside like he would an old T-shirt. But he didn't do that. And the reason he didn't do that is that the point wasn't just for him to suffer as a human. It was also for him to rise and enter heaven as a human being. And this is kind of a mind-blowing idea when we think about it, that God the Son, who is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, He knows, not just intellectually, but experientially. He has felt what it is to be a human being. He knows our weaknesses and temptations. And that is such a source of hope for us because we have someone in heaven who gets us, right? And that's why we say that Jesus is the mediator between God and man because he is the only person who is both. So the other question that we might have about the ascension is why did Christ ascend into heaven, right? Like, why didn't he just kind of disappear, right? Or sort of evaporate? Like, why did he have to ascend? It's like he's sort of being beamed up into heaven. Also, does that mean that heaven is like a place in the clouds, like hovering above the earth and Jesus went up into it? Okay, no, obviously not. As Christians, we don't believe that heaven is this kind of physical space that is above the earth or on or around the earth. Jesus ascent into heaven is symbolic of the fact that Jesus has been raised up in glory. So point number 662 of the Catechism draws a parallel between Jesus being raised up on the cross and then later ascending into heaven. So it says the lifting up of Jesus on the cross signifies and announces his lifting up by his ascension into heaven. In other words, just as Christ is raised up in humiliation and suffering, so also is he raised up in glory. And this parallel between the cross and the ascension reminds us of the fact that God is infinitely just, Right? Like, he doesn't just let Jesus suffer and then say, like, oh, well, great, well done, you've saved the world, that's the end. Okay. He rewards and repairs that suffering with an even greater joy and glory, right? So, if you remember in an earlier episode, we talked about justice and the idea that, you know, if I break something, I then have to fix it. Well, God, who is justice itself, he does the exact same thing. When something gets broken, he fixes it. He really means it when he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And this can be a source of great peace for us, right? Knowing that not a single skerrick of suffering that we experience in this life will ever be forgotten. And if we unite it to the cross, God will repay and repair it a hundred times over, either in this life or the next. Okay, so Christ has ascended into heaven. 
Now, that doesn't mean that he is completely gone from the earth, right? And we're all kind of cut off from him, even though that's how it can sometimes feel. So I remember having this conversation with a Protestant friend of mine and he was talking about how, you know, he was going through a bit of a rough time and not feeling great. And he was sort of saying that he felt like he missed Jesus. You know, he had this sense of longing of like, I just want him to return. I miss him. And I totally get that feeling, right? Because sometimes as Christians, we can feel like, you know, Christ has has ascended into heaven and left us alone. And we know, of course, we know that he's still present to us in his Holy Spirit. But sometimes that can feel at least almost like a kind of abstract symbolic presence, you know, like like if you call your friend and say to them like, oh, I'm with you in spirit, right? That's usually a way of saying like, I'm not there, but I wish I were, okay? But in actual fact, for Catholics... Christ's presence on earth is a very concrete reality. Okay, it's not just symbolic. I mean, first of all, of course, we believe that Christ is truly, substantially present to us in the Eucharist. And that's something that we will get into in a later episode. But the thing I want to dwell on for now is that in Ephesians 1.22, we read that the church is the body of Christ. Now, that is is not just like a nice metaphor, right? Or an image that reminds us that we're all one big happy family, right? If you remember in an earlier episode, we talked about how being in the state of grace, it's like receiving a God transfusion, right? The divine life really flows through us. It's like we have his his blood in our veins, sort of spiritually speaking. So we really mean it when we say that Christ's church is his mystical body on earth. He is truly present on earth through the members of his church that he established. Okay, so Christ is still present to us on earth. But at some point, the church teaches that this earth is going to pass away. And this is what we're talking about when we refer to the end of time, right? Or the end of the world. Now, when we think about the end of time or the end of the world, that might sound like almost a bit silly or melodramatic, right? It might make us think of like, you know, those apocalypse films. You have like, I feel like a new one comes out every five or six years and it's basically the same film, but just with a different natural disaster. And there's always like this kind of unreasonably, unrealistically attractive couple who just happens to survive the apocalypse, right? Okay, so that's what occurs to me when I think of the end of time, right? Or maybe the other thing that comes to mind is like, those kind of weird doomsday cults, you know, like people who are like completely obsessed with the end of the world and with calculating when it's going to be, etc. So there's an episode of Parks and Recreation where there's this sort of weird but harmless cult and roughly every six months they predict that the world is going to end and then they all go and camp in the local park and they actually have quite a lovely time sort of sitting around waiting for the apocalypse. Okay, so the concept of the end of time might feel like something that belongs either to fiction or fantasy, right? and even comedy. But let's return to the idea that the final destination of all humanity is heaven. Okay, this life on earth, it's kind of like the opening act for the band that you really came to see, right? It's nice enough, but it's not what we're here for. Okay, so imagine if you got really disappointed when like the the local acoustic act that you've never heard of wrapped up their set so that Coldplay could come on and play. Imagine if you heard someone be like, oh no, why did he have to stop? He was so good. You'd be like, mate, 
yeah, he was good, but we're here for Coldplay, okay? So in the same way, at some point, this earthly time-bound world has got to wrap it up so that the main event can begin, okay? And when that happens, when the main event happens, Christ, who is love itself, has promised us that he's not going to leave us alone, that he will return and he's going to pick us up and he's going to take us there himself, okay? And that's what we refer to as the end of time and or Christ's second coming. Now, when will that happen? Well, the short answer to that is we don't know. <laughs> okay, no idea. It might be in five minutes or in five million years. Okay, but that's kind of not important, the question of when it's going to happen. What we do know is that we are currently in what we call the last hour or the final age. Okay, now what does that mean? Okay, well, basically, it means that there are going to be no more sort of significant steps or events between Christ's first coming and his second coming. So this is how Peter Kraft puts it. Okay, He says, the most important event in history has already happened, the first coming. Only one more great event will happen, his second coming. There will be no more lords, no more revelations, no more Bibles, no more churches, no more saviours until the end of time. So St. John Henry Newman puts it like this. He says, Up until Christ's coming in the flesh, the course of things ran straight towards the end, nearing it by every step. But now... Under the gospel, that course runs not towards the end, but along it and on the brink of it and at all times equally near that great event. Christ is ever at our doors. So that might seem like a, a kind of a strange image, right? But let's think of it this way. I don't know if you have ever been to the theatre, okay? If you go to the theatre, the night always begins, obviously, with you getting there, right? Making your way to the theatre. So you get in your car, you drive there, you make your way in, you get your ticket, file in, find your seat, sit down, okay? But then there's that moment when everyone is seated just before the show starts where the lights dim and everyone goes quiet and there's like a pause before the curtain goes up. So that pause, that breath in before the show starts, that's what we're living in now, right? Like nothing else of significance is going to happen between the lights going down and the curtain going up. Now, that moment before the curtain rises, it might go for one second or it might go for three seconds, or it might go for 10 seconds, or 20 seconds, or in some cases, even five or 10 minutes, right? So this actually happened to me recently. I was in the theater and I was seeing a show and the lights went down and everyone went quiet. But then there was some sort of tech issue backstage. And so they actually couldn't start the show. And so we were all sitting there for about 10 minutes waiting for the curtain to go up. And it was really funny because like you just noticed over time that like at first everyone was sitting really quietly and attentively, you know, waiting for the show to start. And then after a little while, like people started shifting around in their seats and then you heard people whispering to each other and then the whispering got a bit louder and then you could hear the sounds of people like reaching into their chip packets and then eventually everyone's just like talking and laughing, you know, full volume, having a great old time. And then suddenly this technical issue was resolved and the curtain shot up and the show started and no one was prepared. It was really funny. Like everyone was sitting there with like a Malteser halfway into their mouth laughing at a joke and then suddenly the, someone was on stage talking and everyone had to kind of like push each other and shove their handbags back under the seat and then pay attention. So it's a little bit the same with us. 
Like when we read the writings of the first Christians, it's very clear that there was this real sense of anticipation of the second coming of Christ, this sense that he's really coming very soon and people are waiting attentively for him. And then slowly over time, it's like Christians have started to relax a little bit. And now it's like we're all just standing in the aisles, eating Maltesers and chatting, right? And some of us have even left the theatre altogether, okay? They've given up. Now, we might look back on the first Christians and sort of think like, oops, you know, like, "Eh, that's a bit awkward. They got it wrong. (laughs) Like they made a prediction and it didn't come true. And they might sort of look a bit silly in our eyes. But think about it. If you were at the theatre and the lights go down, you wouldn't laugh at the guy who is sitting next to you waiting attentively for the curtain to go up, right? Like it's pretty reasonable for him to assume that the show is about to start because he knows that nothing else of significance is going to happen before that curtain goes up. And then even if that pause is extended, the show remains about to start, okay? It doesn't get any less about to start just because the curtain is taking longer to go up. The rising of the curtain remains imminent. So the catechism in point number 673 reads, This eschatological coming, so the second coming of Christ, could be accomplished at any moment, even if it is delayed. So say that you're in that moment where the the lights have gone down, it's taking ages, and your friend turns to you and is like, oh gosh, like this is taking forever. I think I'm going to pop outside for a quick ciggy break. Now, if that happened, you'd probably say to your friend, like, look, I mean, you do what you want, but the curtain's about to go up, right? Just because it's been about to go up for five minutes doesn't mean it's less about to go up. Like the show could start at any second and we don't want to leave the theatre because we might get caught out. Or even if we're still inside the theatre, we don't want to be sitting there with like a mouthful of Maltesers when the show suddenly starts and then we have to eat those Maltesers really loudly because they were already in our mouths when the show started and we have to commit to it and crunch on them even though everyone else has gone quiet. Not that I'm speaking from personal experience. <laughs> oh. Now, this need to be prepared for when the show starts, this applies not just to like the end of all time and the end of the world. It also applies just as much to the end of our own lives, right? Like even if the world doesn't end in our lifetimes, our lives certainly will, right? Like at some point, we're all going to die and we want to be prepared for that death or for the end of the world, whichever one comes first, right? Now, what does it mean to be prepared for the end? Does preparation for the end mean that we sort of obsessively try to figure out when it's going to happen and what it's going to look like and, you know, looking for signs that the end is coming? Well, no. Okay. So in both the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, we see moments where the apostles kind of fall into this way of thinking, right? So they they kind of come to Jesus and say, hey, you know, like, can you tell us exactly when the world is going to end? And Jesus' reply to them is really interesting because he basically suggests that the apostles are just not asking the right questions, So he doesn't tell them when the end is going to come. Instead, he tells them how to be prepared for its coming. So he says, Beware that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name and say, I am he and the time is near. Do not go after them. So the first thing he says, the main thing he tells them is be faithful. Focus on staying close to me. Don't wander off. Don't get distracted by something else, even by the idea that the end is coming. Okay. And now that doesn't mean that we don't have to think about the end of the world, but we shouldn't be overly focused on that. The focus should be on Christ himself, on our relationship with him, and on the fact that we need to trust him, right? That, that he's in control and not us. 
Now, Jesus then goes on to talk about some of the things that are going to happen before the end of time. And this is in Luke chapter 21 and Matthew chapter 24. They say pretty similar things. So Jesus talks about how there's going to be wars, revolutions, natural disasters, the persecution of many Christians, and the fact that many, many people are going to lose their faith. So the catechism in points 675 to 677 presents a kind of summary of everything that we learn from the New Testament about the end of time. And it describes what we refer to as a final trial that the church will have to go through. Okay, It says that there will be a religious deception offering people an apparent solution to their problems at the price of apostasy from the truth. So in other words, many people are going to be deceived by the idea that you can find happiness and you can find truth but you have to abandon God. It's kind of like when, you know, um, when the devil says that to Jesus when he's in the desert, right? He says, you can have all of this. All you have to do is fall down and worship me. Okay. It's kind of that, that same lie is going to deceive a lot of people. And this is what is referred to as the deception of the Antichrist. Now, the catechism then goes on to say, The supreme religious deception is that of the Antichrist, a pseudo-messianism by which man glorifies himself in place of God. Okay, so here the catechism is referring to the concept of the Antichrist. Now, both the first letter of John in the New Testament and the second letter to the Thessalonians talk about a single specific person who will lead this deception. So John refers to the Antichrist and Paul refers to a man of lawlessness. And many theologians have argued that this is the same person. Okay, So this person, according to them, is going to openly deny the coming of Jesus in the flesh. And he's going to set himself up as a God in opposition to Christ, a kind of secular God, an anti-Christ. Now, this person, and this is really important, this person is not going to come along looking like a demon with flames shooting out of his eyeballs, being like, worship me. Okay, he's going to be attractive and deceptive. You know, he has to be in order to lead that many people astray. As Bob Dylan puts it, sometimes Satan comes as a man of peace. So the first thing that might occur to us Hearing all of this, we might think, okay, wars, revolutions, natural disasters, persecution and apostasy, aren't those things that are happening right now and in fact have been happening all throughout history, right? And then in terms of an antichrist, I mean, we can see many people throughout history who fit that description. Like Hitler, for instance, you know, he's a nicely uncontroversial example of someone who fits that description pretty well. Okay, well, the first thing to say here is that, as we've already mentioned, we are in the final hour, okay, the final age, and we have been for the last 2,000 years. So John Henry Newman talks about this in a book called The Patristical Idea of Antichrist. And it's quite a sort of academic heavy work, but it's well worth reading if this is something you want to think about more. So I'm paraphrasing here, but basically Newman talks about the fact that insofar as this is the final age, it's also the time of trial, right? And the time of the Antichrist. So even if like the final trial hasn't yet occurred and the Antichrist hasn't appeared yet, 
there still are going to be trials and antichrists, right? And John also talks about this in his first letter. He says that there will be multiple antichrists before the antichrist. Now, this leads us to the second point, which is that we shouldn't get too caught up in worrying about who the antichrist is, right? Just like we shouldn't get too worried about when the end of the world will be. God has revealed all of this information to us about, you know, the final trial and the Antichrist and the end of time, not because he wants us to overanalyze it and obsess about it, okay? The point of him revealing these things to us is kind of twofold, okay? Firstly, it helps us to prepare ourselves and to be ready for whenever the end comes. So, okay, imagine that you were going to see a show at the theatre and you had a friend who was actually working on the show. So they had all of the sort of background information and they were prepping you beforehand and saying like, okay, look, when you go in, the lights are going to go down and then the curtain isn't going to go up for ages, okay? There's going to be a really long pause and it's going to be really dark and it's going to feel like it's going on forever, but just remember the curtain will go up, okay? It's part of the show. It's going to go up eventually. Don't leave the theatre. If your friend said that to you, it's unlikely that you would then walk out of the theatre when the lights went down, okay? Even if it took ages for the curtain to finally rise. And this is exactly what Christ is doing in Matthew chapter 24. He says, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, okay? So he's saying, don't leave the theatre, okay? Don't wander off, don't get distracted, the curtain will rise. And if you hang about, I promise it will be so worth it, yeah? Now, the second sort of function of Christ giving us all of this information about the end of time and what's going to happen is counterintuitively to offer us hope. Jesus isn't saying, you know, this is what I am going to do to the world at the end of time. He's saying, look, this is what the devil is going to do. This is what human beings will choose to do. And I'm letting you know this because I want you to remember that I am here and that at the end of it all, after the cross, comes the eternal joy and glory of the resurrection and the ascension. So point number 677 of the Catechism reads... The church will enter the glory of the kingdom only through this final Passover when she will follow her Lord in his death and resurrection. So in other words, things are going to get really bad and they're going to get bad on a grand scale. You know, just as in our own individual lives, we're going to suffer. Humanity is going to suffer. It's going to go through the cross just like Christ did. But... As with our own individual lives, this suffering, this cross, that's the path to the resurrection. Yeah, The only way out is through. And we have to remember that you know, Christ has already won the final battle. The devil threw absolutely everything he had at him during the crucifixion, and Christ came out triumphant. He defeated evil on the cross, and he defeated death through his resurrection. So if we hold tight to him, like those preschool kids in a line behind their teacher, he's going to carry us through, okay, and out the other side. Now, the Catechism tells us that when he does return, Christ is going to judge the world. And this makes sense, right? Because Christ is returning to come and get the people who have chosen to be with him forever in heaven. So he has to differentiate between the people who have and the people who haven't chosen him. So point number 678 of the Catechism says, During the final judgment... 
the conduct of each one and the secrets of hearts will be brought to light. Then will the culpable unbelief be condemned. Okay, now now this starts to touch on questions of things like, you know, the final judgment and the particular judgment and sin and heaven and hell, etc. And these are all things that we're going to address in more depth in four episodes time, okay, in the episode on life everlasting. But for now, the main points to emphasize about the ascension and second coming of Christ. We are in the final hour, okay, and we shouldn't get complacent because the curtain could go up at any second. But we also shouldn't obsess over that. We shouldn't be overly focused on how and when the end is going to come. The main thing to worry about is our relationship with God. It reminds me of that section from um, Harry Potter that we talked about in the episode on the crucifixion, where Harry just has to cling tightly to Dumbledore, even though they're going through this kind of suffocating darkness. That's exactly how we have to approach the idea of, you know, the final trial and the second coming. And not just that we need to stay close to Christ, but we need to help other people to stick close to him. Like that question that Jesus asks in Luke chapter 18, he says, when the son of man returns, will he find any faith on earth? That is a question and we can answer it and we can help other people answer it. And that's what we need to focus on, yeah, our own faith. And one thing that I really love about the the image of the theatre and the curtain going up is that we're talking about a curtain rising and not coming down, right? So as Christians, we're not sort of waiting in fear and suspicion for something terrible that's going to happen, for a curtain to come down on all of our joy and all of our fun. We are waiting in joy and confidence and peace and hope for a curtain to rise on something unimaginably wonderful. And all we want is to be ready for whenever that happens. Okay, now that's all we have time for in this episode. In our next episode, we are going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Such fun. I can't wait. I hope you have a fantastic fortnight and I will see you soon. Bye.